The number one priority I have for the organization is that we need to earn our customers' business. Sounds funny to say it that way. Do customers really have a choice? No, but we should act like they have a choice, and we need to earn their business. By earning their business, that means earning their trust, treating them like we have competition. And it's easy when your customers don't have a choice to sometimes forget that. That is going to be our key to success. Hey, everybody, and welcome. I'm Sam Coates, and this is the Driven By Podcast. Life's a lot more fun when you're all in and passionate about what you're building. This show is filled with wide-ranging conversations that will bring you insights, experiences, and expertise through the stories of what each of my guests are building. Driven By Podcast is produced by Driven By Sam Coates. And for more information on how my talented team and I serve entrepreneurs, corporations, and private families tell their stories, go to drivenbysamcoats.com. Also, for more podcast episodes and to sign up, go to drivenbysamcoats.com backslash podcast. Before we get going, let's hear from this week's sponsor. Hey, everybody. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J E. T-S. Hey, everybody. My guest this week is the CEO of the nation's largest three-service municipal utility service, Doug McGowan, former Top Gun pilot, Navy captain, City of Memphis COO, plus a lot more. And now he's a CEO of MLGW. I've heard many times that Doug simply knows how to get stuff done. So it's a privilege to record this with him, and his reputation did not disappoint. This is a great episode that covers the following. How you bring urgency, transparency, and accountability to transform performance under a government-owned system. The threat and consequences of an insufficient workforce and what to do about it. Why Memphis is one of the greatest cities in America, plus a whole lot more. Please enjoy this week's episode with current MLGW CEO, Doug McGowan. Doug, thanks for doing this. Happy to do it. Glad to be here. I read a quote. I guess it's when you took this job at MLGW. You said, you don't need me on the power lines. You need me to set a direction that drives the outcomes you seek. Sure. Is that right? Yeah, that's really in response. I think there was a question when I was getting confirmed at Memphis City Council about, you know, do you have the prerequisite background for uh, running a utility. And my answer at that point was two. Number one, A, I have run a utility. We had a stormwater and a sanitary sewer utility at the city of Memphis that we ran. And two, the job of a chief executive officer is to really set the direction for the organization to set new expectations, to give 
information and resources to their people to be successful and then to measure their progress against those goals. So fundamentally, I didn't need to be an expert in what I was talking about at that point. You don't want me out repairing your utility lines. What you do want me to do is set a standard of excellence for the organization that aligns with the direction of the community that we serve. That's the community of the city of Memphis, the communities, other communities and municipalities that we serve. So and I think that my background has given me a pretty good baseline for being able to do that with this organization. With that, you seem, and this is just a perception, but you seem comfortable with accountability and pressure. Is that fair? Sure. It's interesting. When I was leaving uh, the United States Navy after I retired, I said, what, what kind of a job do I want to get? And I was being a bit reflective about the things where I had been successful in the past. And, you know, I was talking with my wife. I was talking with some of the mentors that I had. And I said, well, the job that I am really good at and the one that I always seem to seek out are the ones where the problems seem intractable, the resources are too scarce, the leader doesn't have all of the authority necessary to get things done, yet is 100% accountable for results. And I said, that's the kind of job I want because that's some of the most meaningful leadership that you can do. And that's really where the opportunity to advance um, if you have all the resources and you know what the answers are and you have all the authority to make a change, that's just managing a problem. But true leadership comes when you have some gaps in all of those things, yet you still are willing to step up and say, I'm accountable for uh, moving the ball forward uh, with this organization. So when the odds are against you, the deck stacked against you, you're under-resourced and there's a challenging problem without a clear solution, that's what you want. Sure. And I think that's the hallmark of most folks who gravitate towards leadership positions, they're not going to shy away from circumstances like that. In fact, you know, when there is a, a, a void of leadership, people who have that kind of skill step into that. And again, this isn't about me. I'm just speaking in leaders in general. But that's the kind of opportunities that I seek. Um, and that's why I really looked for the opportunity when I came to the city of Memphis to step into the chief operating officer's role. That's what I look for in this role here at Memphis Light, Gas, and Water, because I really do think there is this, an incredible amount of opportunities. And what I, what I don't mean to say is that, you know, certainly the wheels are not off the wagon, so to speak, but there are plentiful opportunities to, for us to improve. And certainly we don't have all of the money in the world just to make it better. We don't have all of the people that we need necessarily, but I think people expect reliable, affordable utilities that they just don't have to think about. And that's what we're here to do. Where did that get driven in you? Was there experience in your time with the Navy where it was a defining moment for you personally, where your back might have been up against the wall, might have been a very challenge? Where did you learn to love that? I think you just grow into it by seeing other people who are uh, in those positions and, quite frankly, being given opportunities by other folks who were um, senior to me in the military and gave me the opportunity to step up. And, you know, you ask some questions, they give you the resource they think you need to be successful, but uh, they put you in a position where all the answers aren't there, but you're expected to come back with, you know, a solution that works for everybody. And, and that starts at a small scale and then grows to a bigger scale and you kind of grow into it. So, you know, leaders are not necessarily born, they are made through a process of their experiences. And without the, that body of experiences, I probably wouldn't be here today, but you're given opportunities by people to step up to the plate and see what you can do. And then not every time are you successful. You have to fail and fail early and then be given the opportunity to step up again uh, and learn from those mistakes. And so that's really where it came from. And there's no one thing that got us there. It's just 
having an affinity for wanting to step out and be a part of the solution rather than sitting on the sidelines. You're a Top Gun pilot, right? Yeah, I was a graduate of Top Gun, 1989. How do you sit in an office all day and not so, go crazy? Yeah, well, I'll be honest. I mean, that's one part of the job. You know, and throughout the course of my 27-year career in, in the United States Navy, I spent more time not flying than I did flying. I mean, flying was a preparing to fly, training to fly, actually flying was, uh, I would suggest, my trade. But my profession was one of being a naval officer. Um, I still had, when I was doing those things, I was responsible for being in charge of sailors. So when I was a very junior officer, that started with a small number of sailors. And then throughout your career, you get in charge of more and more people, more and more assets. So when I was a squadron commanding officer, we had you know about 450 sailors and 14 uh, F-18F Super Hornets. And you're responsible and accountable for all of that. You still have to be adept at your flying skills, and you have to be adept at your tactics, techniques, and procedures, but you're really held accountable for the performance of the entire team. So that's something I took on very seriously. And there are times during your career when you're not flying at all. You're doing uh, what they call a joint tour, a dissociated shore tour, and you're learning something completely different. So it was a wonderful experience. That was the trade that I was in in the United States Navy, but my profession was one of being a naval officer. And I think that's where a lot of the learning comes from. So what you're saying is that was just a piece of it. Just one piece. But you were able to see the bigger picture the whole time. But from an, a, an adventure standpoint, an adrenaline standpoint, you seem on point from a personal standpoint. So I was curious about how you get that fix, I guess. I think you just uh, move it into other areas of your life because you, you learn to get enjoyment from a lot of different things. And as I said, uh, you can have the absolute best day flying and uh, it can be a blue sky and wonderful opportunity to get out there and, and do something really great. But the meaningful, sticky stuff that stays with you over time are the opportunities to help people who you work with advance, either fixing a problem for them, helping somebody move to the next level, and watching people who you work with advance and take on more responsibility themselves. I mean, that's what leadership's about. That's really what um, development of people is about. And uh, that may not be true for everybody, but for me, that's where I got the the greatest amount of satisfaction was to watch the success of other people because you've given them the resource and sometimes the resource is authority. I'm just granting you the authority to make the decision, make the right decision. What questions do you have for me? They go off and do it and they're really successful and you watch them grow. So, and I find that same thing. I found it when I was working with the mayor's innovation delivery team here Then I found it when I was working with the city and I'm finding that here at Memphis Lake Gas and Water as well. How do you drive movement and action through a municipality-owned organization like MLGW or, you know, like with the city, seven years there? Well, it's a really good question. And um, I think the word you use is intentional. And that's that's really it is you have to be intentional about things. You know, as a leader, you're really, your role is in three basic buckets. That Number one is in setting expectations for the organization and for individuals. Number two is to give them the resource they need to meet those expectations. And then number three is providing the necessary information for the organization to work, for individuals and the systems to work. And so part of setting expectations means having a vision for where the organization is going to go, and that has to be informed by a larger vision. So in the city of Memphis, we wanted to drive a new vision, new direction for the city, so it was informed by data about what was productive and what was not productive for us in the past. And the byproduct of that was uh, setting a new growth plan for the city through Memphis 3.0. Uh, 
that was a data-informed plan that was going to set a new growth direction for the city. And that became the new expectation uh, for how we were going to build our city. And then part of that is then giving the resources necessary for people to build that. So we put Accelerate Memphis into place, a $200 million project to help invest infrastructure to bring Memphis 3.0 to life. And then providing the information, sharing that out to other organizations so that people could come behind and align their efforts to that. So it took a little bit of intentional long-range planning, but it also takes day-to-day planning. So uh, I'll quote, you know, Mayor Strickland and I both know Mayor Greg Fisher from Louisville, and he often says that he has three buckets of work that he does. He does the day-to-day work, which comes about 50 to 60% of the work he does every day. Then about another 30% is process improvement. But every day, he does about 10 to 20% breakthrough thinking. That's how he breaks up the buckets of time. And I think that's a really accurate description of how you make a change in the organization. If you think about it, you can get caught up eight hours a day at your job just doing your day-to-day thinking, right? Just day-to-day processing, paper in, paper out, widget in the front door, and you produce another widget out the back door, and that's all you're doing. You have to spend some time figuring out how to make that process faster and better and cheaper and more efficient. And as a leader, you're responsible for making sure there's a process in place for that process improvement. But how do you get to where you really want to go unless you do that breakthrough thinking, like where am I going next and where do I want to be in five or 10 years? Those kinds of lessons go all the way back to the military training that we had you know, in the Navy. You, know, you had to worry about your tactics, techniques, and procedures And then you go off to a school like Top Gun where you learn to perfect your craft and help other people improve their craft. But then, you know, in the Department of Defense, you have lots of strategic kinds of plans. You have to look at what are the likely scenarios for conflict and make a plan for that. So you have to do that with every organization. So here at Memphis Lake Gas and Water, we're embarking on that very same journey. We have our day-to-day work, and that's largely what we're doing every day. We're preparing for a storm. We are underway with a uh, LED streetlight solution for all of the streets in the city of Memphis. And then we have a process improvement plan. That is our way forward plan. That's how we're going to improve the process of delivering energy uh, to all of our customers, to delivering water and gas to all of our customers. And then I've asked our team through one of the priorities, I said, what, what is our path to 2040? That's our breakthrough thinking. Where are we going to be next? And then for all of that work, you have to have accountability measures. How are we doing today? And once we identify an issue with the day-to-day work, what are the metrics that are going to drive that process improvement? And then also tracking our path to 2040. Are we on or off target to getting to where we want to go? So thinking in that way, I think, is a pretty easy framework for folks to understand. Here's the direction that we're going. It's not just about what we're doing today or being insular. It's about moving the organization forward based on research and data that says, here is the most productive thing for the organization to be doing. And then at the end of the day, we have the city council, the board of directors have to make some decisions about the offerings that I'm putting forward for the direction of the organization. So that's how we're doing it. And I think uh, most folks are happy to jump on board as long as they know, okay, you're going to explain clearly my expectations. You're going to back me up by giving me the resources. Let's go. Uh, People uh, generally are not very satisfied with their work conditions when they don't know what the expectations are of them or they change every day or they have unrealistic expectations that they don't have the resources to get the job done. It's like, yeah, boss, I don't, how do you expect me to do that? I don't have X, Y, and Z. 
I saw that you studied civil engineering at Virginia Military Institute, right. correct? Mm-hmm. I did. Can you maybe share coming in to an environment like your, where you're at today, what are your own principles when you're reading it and seeing it to where you're not trying to be distracted maybe by what you're being told or only going off of certain things you hear, but to get a bigger look at the bigger picture and then do things by the book the way you've done it in the past? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. You know, Mayor Mike Bloomberg from New York City said, you know, God, we trust all others bring data. <laughs> so you kind of have to look at the data, and he may not be the originator of that, but that's where I heard it first. Um, so you have to take a look at the data, and and then the other one of the other principles that is kind of embedded in you is you know nothing is ever as good or as bad as first reported. So uh, people who are bringing you the panacea or who are saying the sky is falling, you want to have the patience to gather a bit more information before you necessarily react to what that is. So um, your question about the engineering background, I mean as the folks at the city would tell you, I know just enough to be dangerous. I mean, those principles are foundational to understanding how things work. But again, I'm not going to be designing anything based on the engineering background. It's just a solid foundation in how systems operate and how the physics of things works. And I think that gives you a really good foundation for assessing what's possible and plausible. But as new technologies come on, as uh, new processes and procedures are introduced. And as you think about what's next on the path to 2040 for Memphis like gas and water in this case, you have to be really thinking deeply about uh, what's coming next on the technology front that can help those kind of stalwart systems, the ones that are, you know, electrons are, are electrons are electrons. They never change. And natural gas is, has a certain amount of properties, as does water. But there are systems and processes that can get different outcomes using those same raw materials. And, you know, there are a lot of industry experts and a lot of people who are doing research. And you have to pay attention to what's happening out there so you can be prepared to take advantage of the one that comes to maturity first, if it's consistent with what you're trying to get done. So, again, in those three buckets of day-to-day process improvement and breakthrough thinking, you got to have time for breakthrough thinking for those new things to come on board so you can begin to think about, assimilate, and process. And that's really how I think you pull yourself and the organization forward is always thinking about what's next. But you can't ignore what's here before you today either. Yes, sir. Have you ever failed? Sure. Sure. But you earlier you talked about being given opportunities where yeah. you fail, but then you're given a chance to make it right. Is your experience in being able to make it right, does that give you the confidence to take on things in a very public way that are very difficult? Well, sure. And I think that, um, you know, failures in your own definition, if you hold yourself to a high standard, sometimes, you know, people are like, oh, that went, you did a really good job. It's like, well, no, I, I missed it on X, Y, and Z mark. And so I think you have to have a good barometer on your own strengths and weaknesses. And certainly, you know, you have to also be willing to say, I'm not the right person for that job. I'm not the right person to do it. This person's better at it. Now, if you want me to, I will still do it, but this person has a better skill set to doing it than I do. And that's what I found in the past. Like, no, but we still want you to do it. Well, that's an opportunity for you to learn and stretch and grow. But absolutely, um, certainly, especially as a young naval officer, there were things that, you know, I screwed up all the time, quite frankly, (laughs) and had the benefit of folks who saw other good stuff in me. And I think that's the hallmark of good leadership is to judge intent equally with action. If you make a mistake and you do it for the right reasons, people understand what you're trying to get done. 
that's something you can work with. But if somebody's making a you know a malicious error, or just doing it out of ignorance, then that's a different problem. So, but sure, I failed. I mean, you think about this personally. I think about times I failed my family and failed my kids, and it was not so proud moments as a dad, and not so proud moments as a husband. For it's like, boy, I handled that incredibly poorly. Um, not so proud moments. You know, even though you try to hold yourself to a high standard, not so proud moments at the office when either A, lost your cool, or B, lost your focus, and uh, your people deserve better than that. And so you try to keep those kinds of things to a minimum and learn and move on, uh, but also, you know, report out to your boss when, hey, look, I, I didn't do as good a job as I could have here, and um, I failed in the following ways, and I'm going to do better next time. Without him or her saying something to you. Well, absolutely. I think you have to not wait. You've taken that ownership mentality. Absolutely. You have to, I mean, again, if you're, you know, I know a lot of people on your podcast will talk about servant leadership, and I think that's important. It's not about me. It's about the organization. It's about the people who I'm entrusted to serve. And in Memphis Light Gas and Water's case, it's the 2,600 people who call MLGW their family. I'm in, you know, my job is fundamentally to serve them. And if I come up short in serving them, I ought to fess up to the board, to the mayor, to the city council, say, that's my mistake. You know, I can do better in the future. So in some ways, you know, organizations will fall short of their stated goals. I think it's incumbent upon the leader, whomever that is, to say, you know, I own this, I'm accountable for it, and uh, to step up to the plate and say, here's how I can do better in the future. I guess the short story that I always talk about in leadership is that, again, back to those three values of, expectations, resources, and information. If, if you're talking with an employee and something went wrong with what they were doing, the first thing you'll say is, okay, let's talk about, <clears throat> did you clearly understand what, what it is we were trying to get done? And they're like, I mean, think about it with your own kids. You're like, oh, I didn't know you wanted me to do that. Well, okay, that's my fault. I didn't clearly express the expectations or, yeah, but you didn't give me, you know, you told me to do this, but you didn't tell me where to find the tools and resources to get it. So that's kind of how I assess any kind of performances to look at, okay, did, did they clearly understand what was to be done? Did they have the resources they needed to get done? And did I share with them all the pertinent information? Again, back to your kids, how many times have you talked to them? You're like, why would you do that? You know, it's, they're like, well, what about I had this and this and this? And you get more information. You're like, okay, yeah, right. That makes a lot of sense. Now, I, now that I understand, that makes a lot of sense. So let's reframe this. Here's what the clear expectations are. Let me make sure you got what you need to do the job done to get the job done. So same thing when you're the leader, you just, you don't get to have that conversation more than once. You have to come clean and say, here's where I fell short. And are you saying, you didn't say this, but I think you're saying it by how you've talked through what you've shared. If you look at the data and you get a bigger picture view while you're in the muck in the day to day, I don't mean muck negatively, when, yeah, sure. but when you're in the grind and you know the data, the direction is clear and you're honest about the performance to whatever the objectives are, you get margin and you get time to figure it out. And if you fail along the way, you can course correct, but you can only really course correct if you're taking ownership along the way. Is, is that fair? No, I think that's right. But also I think you ought not judge failure at the end of the journey or failure or success at the end of the journey. You have to have milestones all along the way. So you ought to be judging how you're doing all the way through that and getting, if it's a, if you're talking about your own personal performance, you ought to seek feedback immediately and often, uh, though it doesn't have to be formal, it's like, hey, am I doing okay? Is this right? Am I, you know, or if it's a project, you got to have milestones. Like, are we on track, on track? How do, how do you know 
I mean, the, the worst thing you can do is, I guess I'll use, when I was at the city, we had the Renaissance Convention Center that we were doing. We were building the $200 million renovation there during the middle of a pandemic. And uh, the charge was we're going to build this on time and on budget. And um, even though we had four months when there was no workers there and supply chain issues and everything else, we just said, we don't care. We're going to come in on time and on budget. And so I could have said that at the outset and then waited till we were done and went, okay, the envelope, please, you know, worked. Did we come in on budget or not? No, I mean, every week we measured every single thing to say, how's it going? And we made uh, determinations about decisions that were critical to being on time and on budget. And then there was the quality measures in there too. So to your point, yes, you have to be able to rise above what's happening in your day-to-day to take an objective viewpoint of how are we doing. It's kind of like uh, driving your car but never looking at the dashboard, right? you got to <laughs> look at the dashboard. Am I going too fast? Do I have any gas? How's the oil doing? All that kind of stuff. Uh, you got to look along the way to see how you're doing on your journey. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S., Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S to travel on your own terms. So you got a $200 million city convention center, for example. Mm-hmm. You got a global pandemic. Yep. And you said on time, on budget. Yes. But er- earlier in the conversation, you also said one of the things that people, you know, there's several things people need, but one of them is essentially not creating goals that are unrealistic. That's right. But how you were talking about that is this is the plan. This is what we're doing and we're not going to deviate away from it. So from your own process, can you maybe talk through how you manage that to achieve that outcome when I have no experience given any expertise in the odds of, but if you probably take a hundred people trying to build a $200 million convention center, odds are most of them are not going to execute. How did you do that? What that look like? One minor point is that we never said, here's the plan and we're not deviating. We said, this is our objective. And lots of people probably say it, but I learned it in the military. Again, it's like no plan survives first contact with the enemy. So you can have the best plan going in, but you better be ready to be nimble. And that's why you keep the top level objective. Our goal was to be on time and on budget. We had a plan for how we were going to do that. Pandemic hit, prices started going through the roof, labor market starts going south. Well, that plan we had before the pandemic isn't going to be able to be executed anymore, but the same objective exists. So you got to be in there. And so an example of how we did that was just, we had a construction committee meeting and we met every Wednesday morning at seven o'clock in the morning for an hour. And we made, we got the information, we made decisions and we gave the team direction and then moved on. So we didn't just, you know, say work harder. 
we'd put in the time as well to make sure that we were able to provide the guidance and make those hard decisions that that the team you know essentially needed us to make so that they could get to where they were going. Hey, they provided us some alternatives. We said, "Here's the one to take," and then we'll live with the outcome of that. So, and some of those did put the budget at risk. Some of those put the timing at risk, but those were calculated decisions. And people do this every time, every day in their lives. And so it wasn't just about that, but it was about you have to have a little bit of flexibility along the way because you're going to encounter obstacles that you never anticipated, but you still got to get to the end, end of the trip. And what you're saying is you made time for it. You and whoever else involved, you cleared it and well, you we made invested. it priority. Yeah, we invested it. I mean, you often say, you know, you don't want to ask your team to do something you're not willing to do yourself. Uh, so we had to make it a priority. Um, that doesn't mean that I was doing it every day, all day, but every Wednesday from 7 in the morning until 8.30 in the morning, we met and talked because it was that important. And then throughout the day, also making uh, decisions if we needed to because you have, you know, a hundred other things you're doing. But you had to, if it was, if it's a priority for you, it's a priority for the team. And you, you served in the Navy for, was it 28 years? Uh, 27 years, yeah. 27. And then COO of City of Memphis for seven here and then... You took over from Mayor Wharton. It was Innovate Memphis, is that correct? Yeah, Innovate five, Memphis. Before? I did that for, let's see, 2011 to 2015, yeah. Has your edge, has your focus, does it ever fluctuate? Or what have you done to stay what seems like locked in for decades? Well, that's an interesting question. I haven't heard that before. But look, I think it's a desire to serve. As I said, you know, kind of earlier on, you know, you look for those problems uh, that are kind of intractable and where you want to be accountable. But but fundamentally, that means you want, you're trying to make a change for the better, right? So you're trying to help make a change. And service is somewhat in my DNA. That's, you know, I always wanted to, to serve and help other folks. And I thought I could do that through the United States Navy. And then I said, well, that was the number one driver when I retired. I said, how do I stay in the, how do I stay in public service, a way that I can help advance, whether it's our community or our nation um, or our city. So I was looking for that opportunity. And I was trying to, without saying specifically what I would do, kind of overlap that with the intractable problems and accountability. And I found the sweet spot there when this opportunity for the innovation team came along because they were working on you know youth gun violence and neighborhood economic vitality and some things that we needed to work on in the city of Memphis. And so it was just a natural fit there. And so when you can get excited about that mission and the outcomes, and it's easy to stay motivated. You can, every day you're going to, you know, as I, as I told folks, some days you'll start on your toes and end up on your heels, but you always start on your toes and lean into the problem. And, you know, I was excited to go to work every day, excited to get in there. And some days you're excited to go to work, but you got that feeling in the pit of your stomach, like it's going to be a tough day today, but you still got to get in there and do it. So, but all of it is because I think there was, a, there was such an opportunity at the end such an opportunity, especially for this city and for the folks that live here, I think. And that's what really drives me to be excited about coming to work every day, both here and at the city, was the opportunity to see Memphis get to its rightful place as one of the great cities in America, because it really is. And sometimes we just don't recognize that. But how do we make that meaningful and how do we make that sticky so that everybody understands it's really what's happening here? You're from Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, Northwest Pennsylvania, a small town called Meadville. <laughs> so why would you say that? And what's kept you here? You said it's one of the greatest cities in America, yeah. whether we realize that or not. It is. You know, I connect. I grew up in a small town, 13,000 people in rural Crawford County, 
Pennsylvania. I always joke there's more cows than people there. <laughs> it may or may not be true. It's got to be pretty close to true. But Memphis is a big city, but it's a small, big city. You're kind of one degree of separation. All you need to know is one person to get in any door here in the city, and you can actually get some things done. We're big enough that we have the resources to flex our muscles and actually get some things done when we all come together, but we're small enough that we're not overcome by such inertia that it's such a huge bureaucracy. I have to say from the seat here at Memphis Lake Gas and Waters, because we also have an abundance of goodness here that many times we don't recognize. I mean, some of the most awesome natural spaces and tree canopy and all those other kinds of things, which I'll talk to about in a minute here, because that does sometimes impact our electrical infrastructure. But you know, from a resource perspective, world's best water and a huge supply of it that's readily available. And I've lived in places around the world, around the country where you couldn't use water every day um, in the way that we do it here. You had to be, you were on, you know, water hours or you were scheduled on specific days when, where you could use water. And that's just a resource constraint. And you're seeing that in some places out West and or places where my electric bill was very high because I didn't have natural gas access. So I had to have electric heat, which is much more expensive. And or in the case of electrical power, I know we had the recent rolling blackouts here, but you know, as I said, my family and I lived in California. We just that was part of the routine. You know, we, every day we had to reset the clock on the microwave and the stove because you knew the power went out at some point, and the power fluctuated, uh, the voltage fluctuated pretty regularly. So you had to have surge protectors, power supplies, uh, so you didn't fry your electronics. So when you come here, though, we didn't have to think about any of that. You got plentiful gas. You got the best water in the world. You can use it when you need it. And with the exception of the recent rolling blackouts and some of the reliability issues that we're trying to, to get to, we actually do have really good opportunities here. And so it's my job to make sure that we make those even more reliable, especially the electrical dis- distribution, which is one of the things we're working on here very earnestly. You got 2,600 people that work with you here, right? Mm-hmm. And then MLGW is the largest municipal-owned three-tier water, gas, electric in the country and you talked about an abundance of water especially given a lot of other shortages around the country what's the pride doing this for a living and putting in your career doing this work well i'll I'll do it from a couple of different directions number one i really don't want anybody to have to think about us it it just should be there when you turn on the switch you turn on the faucet you turn the heater, it should just happen. And you shouldn't have to think about us. Now, I know you're going to once a month when you write that check, and nobody likes to do that, but that's true no matter where you live. But if we can be a part of helping people live an easier life by having one less thing to worry about, that's what we should do. Because there's enough other challenges in life that people have to face. So whatever we can do to make it easier. And that goes to, as our team has talked about and we've joked about, you know, with the but we take it very seriously. You know, the city of Memphis and Mayor Strickland have done a good job of increasing paving around the city, right? And they've really uh, done a, a significant job in increasing that. But, you know, it's maddening when we have an emergency, you have to go cut that street that was just freshly paved, right? So right. so you're also thinking about us when you're driving down Poplar Avenue, ba-boom, ba-boom, you hit a pothole that we had to dig out. Emergencies aside, we got to plan that work you know, as well as we can so that we're not doing that and we can plan ahead. So making it easier for people to live their lives, I think, is a great deal of pride. And I think understanding that it, we really are trying to keep things as affordable as possible. We are continuously relate, rated as one of the lowest cost utilities in the country. 
I know that people often don't feel that because we do have all three utilities on one bill and we have things like the street light fee and the stormwater fee and the sanitary sewer fee <laughs> on uh, the bill, which makes it inflated. But on a per utility cost, we were always very low. That helps people. That helps stretch their dollars further. We often hear about people who have to make choices between whether I'm paying some or all of my light bill or putting some groceries on the table or paying rent. And that's a very real thing here. That's something I take very seriously. I think we all do to make sure that we can meet our customers where they are and to try to help them navigate life in a way that they can build a prosperous and meaningful life here. And the more they have to think about us, the less time they have to think about other things. So that's a lot of pride, I think. And then also our team takes that seriously. Uh, we mentioned the other day, we don't think often about gas. Our team's done a wonderful job of managing our gas portfolio to keep those prices down. Somewhat subject to the market fluctuations of the pricing, but we negotiate uh, pretty deeply on that. And we have a hedging program and that's saved our customers $40 million just this last year. $40 million over 300,000 customers, you know, it's, you're talking dollars a month, but it still is a savings. $40 million is a lot of money to save. And if we weren't as earnest about trying to actually keep those prices low and to keep them stable, we wouldn't invest that kind of energy into doing it. But that's important. How did that happen? Uh, a lot of really smart people. That work here. That work here, but also because we have a benefit of three transmission lines, three gas transmission lines that come through Memphis. And not every city has that opportunity. And so that gives us a competitive advantage because we, it's just like having, I guess it may not be exactly parallel, but there's, you know, three separate cellular service providers. And so you're trying to find out which one gives you the better deal, right? Gas comes from three separate providers. There are three separate companies, transmission companies that we buy gas from. But they're not related to the Tennessee Valley Authority. So TVA only is doing electric. They only do electric. So That's the vendors right. that are supplying the gas, natural gas, mm -hmm. you got three different avenues, roughly, pipelines yes. coming through. And so you're able to, because of doing that, since you're buying it off spot market, whatever the equivalent would be, you're able to essentially maximize the best deal from those three right. where only other people might only have one option. They may only have one option, so... You know, it's a it's a competitive advantage for us to have that kind of competition. And then our team, as I said, they do a hedging program where we're willing to to bet on the market ahead of time uh, by investing a small amount of money to secure a price in the future. That is a program that has yielded, like I said, $60 million of benefit to our customers. People have been talking a lot about electrical reliability. They've been talking a lot about water. So they haven't had to think about gas as much. We've made lots of investments there. So it's a it's something that is a real benefit for our customers and something our team has worked very hard on, and I'm rightly proud of the work that they've done there. What I'm hearing from you is things like that that are saving $60 million that saves every taxpayer, every citizen, every homeowner, renter, et cetera, that saves them money, and then it's cleaning up MLGW, its own operating income, which is only going to help it continue to make strategic investments to continue to to think from a bigger picture standpoint, connected back to what you were talking about earlier. Is that fair? Sure. You know, every dollar that comes in from customers, you need to be thinking about every single dollar and how that's used. Sometimes it's to pay your suppliers. A good portion of it is to pay your suppliers, and the rest of it is used to pay for management of the utility and future capital investments. 
um, and or any debt that you've incurred to take on capital investments. And so that's really how the organization works. There is no profit, unlike a private utility. There's no profit margin here. It's all used for the betterment of the system and the betterment of service to the people that we serve. And so we take that seriously. And as you've seen recently in the 2018-2020 rate increases, all that was predicated on if we have this rate increase, we will have additional cash that we can invest into infrastructure. And that's what that $1.2 billion way forward plan is. There had been a hesitancy in years past to raise the rates because we also understand, as we were just talking about, that there are challenges that folks have to make ends meet. And so you have to really consider the impact on people when you're raising the rates. Counterbalance to that is you have to understand the operating model of the organization. And if there's no money to invest in infrastructure, there's no money to invest in infrastructure and it continues to degrade and your reliability goes down. So it's a careful balance. And I'm pleased that we have that first tranche of funding that we can make the way forward plan real. And we are looking right now to see if there are any gaps in that plan that have been revealed through the uh, most recent winter storm um, and through the water distribution crisis. And if there are any gaps, then we'll bring those forward and determine what we have to do to address them. I read a report. I don't think it was the way forward plan, but it was issued by MLGW and it was a series of KPIs that tie into the objective. And no offense to your predecessor, but it did not look like there was a lot of progress made on this plan. One of them, you know, was tree trimming. Another was infrastructure repairs, things like that. And I watched an interview where you talked about you hired the largest tree contractor in the United States to do this work, and they were unable to provide the people. And I saw somebody that was working with MLGW close to where I live the other day, and they were awesome. They were working hard, and they were like, man, we, we can't get enough people. We're working all the time, and it's, it's wearing us out. And so I'm thinking about major issues, what you're saying about major issues that are hard to solve where you're under resource. And I know your father, from what I read, was an iron worker. I mean, how do you see the future for the work you're doing, the improvement, what you're doing, trying to find men and women that are the right fit when it seems incredibly difficult to actually being able to produce the work. Does that concern you? Absolutely. So, yeah, a couple things. We had one tree trimming contractor, and that was the largest company, tree trimming company. Nothing wrong with them. They were just having trouble finding people to come and work. So we have a request for a proposal out, and we've had, we have three different companies now that are coming. We think that by adding a few other companies to the mix that we might have better success doing that. As you know, uh, many of the tree trimming companies have seasonal workers. And so sometimes seasonal availability is what causes some of the issues um, when you're out of season, they're not necessarily available. But having a qualified workforce overall is a challenge I think that America's facing. Um, It's no less true here. Uh, we have a very senior workforce at Memphis Light Gas and Water. We have that's good because we have a lot of experience. On the other hand, <laughs> much of that experience is going to walk out the door in the not too distant future through retirement. I got to see some of this with in the United States Navy when I was at the Navy Recruiting Command, and we had to make some change. With you know, we needed more people with technical degrees, but the affinity for people to get technical degrees was going down. And our leadership just essentially said, we don't care, go figure it out. And so very quickly, um, we had to look at what we were going to do way upstream in the pipeline. So how do you get young people 
interested and motivated into taking STEM careers. And you hear that all the time now is we're going to focus on STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, math, or STEAM, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And we all kind of came to that conclusion at the same time in America. It was like, hey, that used to be the aspiration. But somehow that affinity has started to go downhill. And that's no less true here at a public utility. You know, young people are influenced by what they see around them and what they have exposure to. And sometimes it's hard to imagine a future. If you're a young person whose parents, parents or parent gave you a limited exposure to the world and the opportunities around you because they were constrained in some way to expose you to those opportunities, or I just never imagined a world where I could be a lineman. I don't, you know, I, I don't even know what, what that is. I mean, I think, doesn't that electrical power just get to us? No, there's <laughs> people that make this happen. And so how do you understand that that's a real opportunity and you could do that? It's incumbent upon us if we're looking for those folks in the future, which we are we're looking now, and we'll be looking in the future for people to do that kind of work. I need to make young people aware that this is a real possibility for you. And I need to make them aware that this is something that you could be interested in in the future. So that means I can't just post a job and say, gee, I hope somebody comes and applies for it. I need to be out there early in the educational system talking about what opportunities are to expose people to this kind of opportunity. So starting at a very young age, we need to get into the elementary schools and the middle schools and the high schools to start talking about what's possible and introducing people to this kind of a career field. And then we were just talking the other day about how do you get into the high schools? You know, what, back in the day, and I'm an old guy, but we all had, you know, shop class in high school. We all had a metal shop, wood shop, it was engineering drawing at that time for us. And so you had an exposure to these kinds of things. And due to a lot of funding constraints, they don't have that anymore. But we need to build programs such that there is a path that you can see when you were in high school, if you're unsure, but hey, let's pick a path and set something up for you. Uh, there's a future for you here at Memphis Light, Gas and Water or in any other utility. So you're saying through the United States Navy and through research and your own experience, the way to solve this is to let people know what can be at a very young age. Sure. And I think put programming in place. So not just programming, but talking to folks about the importance uh, when I, you know, back when I was at Navy Recruiting Command, we set up programs for kids in middle school and say, hey, you can never take enough math and enough science. You can never take too much, right? So if you're not sure what you want to do, just make sure you take some math and science when you get to high school and make sure you take math and science, you know, physics and calculus and all that kind of stuff in college because it's the baseline for anything technical. You can still be an attorney or you can be a, uh, you know, what a, an author, but it's hard to be an engineer, if you decided you wanted to do that without having to go back and do those things. So setting people up for that kind of technical thinking is important. And one of the things that we were just talking about here is how do we set a path for high school students to say, there's a career for you in whether it's water, gas, or electric here as a utility person at Memphis Lake Gas and Water, or as an engineer when you graduate from college with your engineering degree, there's a path for you here as well. Let's fast forward 10, 15 years from now where you feel like the potential of your work today, of all the men and women that serve with you, for that to be hit and executed, what would get in the way of it? Well, I think you nailed one of it, one piece, and that's the workforce we're going to have to have. You'd hate to have the organization aligned and moving along, and then uh, your power to make change and your power to make progress gets eroded because of 
insufficient workforce. Uh, so that's number one, and I think that's the key priority for me is to make sure that we have a, a bench of people who are coming in the door, growing, and being able to sustain the work. I think the biggest impediment that we would have is if fundamentally we don't make a change with our reliability or if we don't make a big change in our ability, our customer service, um, that would be our biggest impediment to change because you have to build trust with your customer base that you are doing the right things in their best interest. The number one priority I have for the organization is that we need to earn our customers' business. Sounds funny to say it that way. Do customers really have a choice? No, but we should act like they have a choice and we need to earn their business. And by earning their business, that means earning their trust and treating them like we, we have competition. And it's easy when your customers don't have a choice to sometimes forget that. That is going to be our key to success. And I've asked our folks how to operationalize that. I'm like, well, if our pri- number one priority is to earn our customers' business, the number one question you have to ask yourself every day is, what can I do to make it better for a customer or a colleague today? You may not have to help a customer, but you can help your colleague in some way. And that's going to manifest in better customer service for everybody. So that's the number one, instead of saying what's an impediment, that's the number one path to getting us to that success is taking on that attitude of how we're going to do it. And then one of the other priorities that I've laid out for our team is that we are going to be a catalyst for economic and community development. Catalyst is different than participant. Catalyst is different than just part of the process. I mean, this organization and the utilities that we bring, as I talked about before, the wonderful access that we have to abundant natural gas, the freshest water in the world, and really stable electrical power at reliable and reasonable rates, we need to turn that into the opportunity for people to want to come here and build more jobs and, you know, build businesses and build jobs. So being more aggressive in that way I think helps us grow our entire community. So we've underestimated and underappreciated the potential and the impact of what can happen when MLGW is squared away to its potential. Sure. Or when, you know, the organization grows to the next level. And what would that be? Well, so I think that that's part of it is to be a catalyst for economic and community development so that people think of us in that regard instead of just like you're a necessary part of the process. We're actually out there on the front edge of helping people realize um, what opportunities there are. Like through awareness, or is it more than that? Well, no, I mean through action. Awareness is, is great, but we actually have to be doing the work. Succeeding and winning and making sure people know, and then they feel it within their own budgets. Sure, I think that's part of it, yeah. But reliably delivering both the service, the utilities that we have, and reliably delivering the customer service that people expect, um, we have a challenge with that right now. So our average call times were way over 30 minutes just a few months ago. They're now well under 20 minutes, and we're on our way down. Um, last week, we had you know calling after time of 70 seconds on one of our days when we still had 5,000 calls, and we only abandoned less than 1% of the calls. But you know nobody wants to wait on the phone for 30 minutes. People, I think, understand in a storm or a power outage or something like that that it's going to take longer. But on a regular day, you have to be able to be a part of a, a customer solution set that people can rely on. Hey, when I call you, I know you're going to pick up and answer the phone. So uh, that rebuilds trust for the constituency, for our customers. And that, I think, helps propel us towards the next level is, hey, I can trust you to do the basic things right. 
So what you're saying is these simple, straightforward metrics that fall in line with these principles and priorities that you've laid out, that's how you know that it's going to happen. Yes. How many kids do you have? I have two. Okay. This is a little bit different. But earlier you talked about taking on the challenge, about finding something you're passionate about, about putting the greater good above yourself, about being given an opportunity or opportunities to make things right. What advice have you learned as a parent? It's a weird question to ask on a podcast like this, but respectfully, you've done a lot. You've seen a lot. You've been in charge of thousands of people. But my kids are probably the best judge of whether uh, I should be giving advice. Because as I said, you know, you, you think back as a parent, you try to do the best job you can. I, I probably have failed them in a number of ways because I, I didn't meet the benchmark I have for myself. And I'm blessed to have a couple of wonderful kids, 26. My daughter is 26. My son's 22. She's an awesome girls volleyball coach and architectural designer and waitress. And she just hustles and makes it happen every day and uh, gets it done. And uh, my son's a Memphis firefighter and newly minted Memphis firefighter in September and loves what he's doing. And they're just, the best thing I can say is that they're just wonderful human beings. I mean, they are really good people. And that's what you want us to raise, really good people. And I give a lot of credit to my wife, Candace, because for, unfortunately, years of their lives, I was not there as I was deployed. And uh, she did a great job. Of, and you got to have a partner who's willing to be aligned with you and give them the values that you would hope. And that's why it's a it's a team game, right? No matter whether you're married or you're, you're divorced or whatever, but the co-parenting thing. And, and we're fortunate to have been married for almost 30 years now, but it's a team sport raising your kids. So, I mean, back to what you asked about here, I often think about my kids and I use them as examples, you know, uh, for these leadership things. And it's like, you know, it's super hard to do, but you got to judge intent equally with action. When your kids do something, you just... Your immediate reaction is, what is wrong? You know, but you got to enjoy well, Take the time to understand what they were trying to do. What were you trying to do? And use that as an opportunity to teach them. Uh, that's just like you would do with any anybody else. The problem is you're emotionally attached to your kids. You're usually not emotionally attached to people at work. So it's easier to give either other kids or that are, aren't yours or people at work the benefit of the doubt. But if you can try to do that at home, uh, I think it's helpful. And then using that three-part leadership model. What are the expectations? If you don't have any expectations of your kids, why would you expect an outcome different from the expectations you laid down? And that doesn't also has to be reasonable and has to be, you know, aligned with what they might want to do, but an expectation that you're going to be a good contributing member of society, right? And, and that whatever that happens to be for you and your family and your value system, but you have to have some expectations for your kids and you have to give them some tools and resources and Unfortunately, sometimes people don't give them the right resource to be successful. So I think about that often when I'm asking, you know, when I've asked the kids uh, to do things and or uh, when you're just interacting with them. But in reflection, I think I probably give myself a C plus or a B with that. Always things you could do better. But uh, again, they came out to be really awesome human beings. I'm incredibly proud of them. And um, hopefully all parents get the benefit of having an experience like that. Yes, sir. Something I've seen in my work, just the number of people that get divorced and there's no judgment on my end because honestly, I, I, I can feel the tension in my own life. I mean, yeah. and I love my wife, but when you love the work and you want love taking the job, you know, you're, you're aware of how your priorities sometimes and the consequences it can create. I'm curious as a follow-up to that, given what you've done and where you've been and the assignments you've taken, 
what have you learned about with the way you talked about your wife and the yeah. way that she's been able to hold things together? Yeah, I think it's I think it's different for everybody, but at least for for us, it's been um, you have to be realistic with your expectations, and you know, I can't change who she is. She can't change who I am. But you know, we're in the in a relationship intentionally. We chose each other, and so the way I think about it and talk about it, you, you have to make deposits in the bank if you're going to withdraw them. And so um, sometimes you have to make, I think about it like this, sometimes you have to make relatively big deposits in the bank so that every day you're taking a little small withdrawal. But don't ever forget, you've got to make those deposits in the bank. So if all you're doing is making a withdrawal every day by saying, hey, i got another late meeting, or hey, i got to do this, or on the weekend i got to do that, all of those are little withdrawals from the bank. What are you putting back in the bank to make that withdrawal from? And sometimes a little deposit in the bank is just what you need and you got to think about making a small deposit in the bank every day, whether it's doing a little something nice or just being present or doing something without her having to ask you or whatever. And I'm, I'm in no position to be given marital advice, but I often think about that. You know, I hate to boil it down to being transactional, but there is no work-life balance. Every day it's out of balance, right? So there are going to be days when it's completely out of balance, and you just have to acknowledge that up front and say, I'm really sorry, but I got to go do this. And it doesn't mean she's not going to be mad about it. It doesn't mean she's not going to be upset, but she certainly understands. But if every day is out of balance in that direction, and I never make her a priority or do anything else to make her a priority, then that's a problem. So you've had to find those ways. And I mean, how do you make up for being deployed for you know six or eight months and she's holding down the fort at home? You can never do that. So all you can do is when you're there and being present, try to make you know, deposits that are valuable in another way to her and uh, to empower her and encourage her to go do things. And so we've tried to do that. She's a wonderful um, professor over at the University of Memphis teaching nursing and encourage her to pursue her dreams and pursue her, you know, nurse practitioner degree and now her doctorate in nursing and try to help support her in that regard. But yeah, I, the ledger sheet is completely imbalanced in my, my house. I mean, I made more withdrawals than deposits and I know that. But it um, doesn't mean I don't try to <laughs> do what I can. And, and uh, we've talked about it, you know. And she's like, I don't like it. But I realize that that's, A, what you're good at, and B, what makes you happy. So we try to do that. That's not probably not the greatest advice in the world, but no, that's, that's something. Pr- pretty dead gum good. I'll be taking notes. Yeah. Last question I got to a man or woman listening. What's the pride or joy of being in public service, given your career, when you think about the other men and women that you work with and also yourself. Doing something that you know makes a difference in somebody else's life. What seems to be an insurmountable problem to them, you may be able to fix quickly. And it's within your power to do so. And taking that extra effort just to fix one small problem. You know, I think about all the times at the city, there's, you know, we get letters, emails, calls to 311, complaints, 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 and it can be overwhelming. But take the time to try to solve at least one problem and make it better for that person that day because if it's within your power to do so, you want to do it. Um, Because there's a lot of things that are not within your power. There's systemic change. But if you can solve a problem for somebody, I mean, think about in your own lives, whether it be your kids or your neighbor or something else, you know, something that seems to be an insurmountable problem. I think oftentimes of, you know, I've had neighbors before, uh, who had a, a little handyman problem around the house, and it was just, you know, they're paralyzed because I don't know what to do. I can't get any. Well, let me go take care of that for you. And it's a, 
incidental thing, you know, I need to, how am I ever going to get this, you know, ceiling fan fixed? Like, well, let me replace that for you. Where how, let me, how am I going to get that shelf or how am I going to get this door back on the hinge? Whatever it happens to be, you know, somebody with a moderate amount of skill can go take care of that in five minutes and it's no big deal. But that person made all the difference in the world. Same thing in public service. To you, you have all the tools and resources at your command to maybe help that person navigate whatever that problem is. doesn't solve all the problems in the city, but you can help that person and make them have a better day. And um, you know, those are the, that, that's the stuff that keeps you going. And you hope that systemically you start knocking down problems so that people don't have as many of those. But um, that's really it is you know you're making a difference. I'll use a couple of examples I can do those all day with individual property owners and parcel owners, but think about Mayor Strickland and the city of Memphis, and you know, we tried for a decade to get universal needs-based pre-K funded because we knew there was a bunch of kids, a bunch of four-year-olds that needed pre-K that just couldn't afford to go there. We didn't have enough seats. And so Mayor just said, find a way to do it. And so we, it was hard, <laughs> and we, but we figured it out. And so... Now there's universal needs-based pre-K for every four-year-old in the city of Memphis and Shelby County who needs it. Am I going to feel that this week or next week? No, but I know long-term, that's, a, that's money in the bank for us. We're, that's an investment, right? Those, all those kids are going to have a head start. And then I think of where our transit system was, and you know, we put transit vision together. It was going to be a complement to Memphis 3.0, but we needed like $30 million more a year. How are we going to do that? We can't afford to raise taxes. We can't afford to raise fares. How are we going to do it? Uh, Mayor Strickland just said, we're going to do it. Find a way to make it happen. And so uh, getting into details, we found a way to make it happen. And so now something like 50% of the people are able to access transit to get them to work in under an hour. And we knew that was a problem before when the average transit time was a couple of hours just to get to work. That's going to make a huge difference in the lives of people. Now there's, I don't know who they are and I don't know who they are individually, but I know that's inherently a good thing. And the same thing here at Memphis Lake Gas Water. Um, one of the projects that we're working on is LED streetlights. And we've already started We're converting all of the LED streetlights. Um, again, Mayor Strickland said, this is one of the things that I want to get done. Help me find a way to get it done. So the team came together, got it done. And now this year, every streetlight in the city of Memphis will be converted to LED streetlights. And we're hopeful that we can take that model and deploy it to other municipalities that we serve. That's going to help. Elevate the country. Yeah, everybody. And saves energy, lights up the streets, makes it safer, makes it look, you know, it's just inherently safer when the streets are brighter. So we know all those things are making a difference in people's lives. And that's what drives you is to try to get to those systemic programs that will improve people's lives. And I mean, that, that's what keeps you going. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.